Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that, that there's going to be false Christs, false messiahs in the world, and false prophets. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Now, there have always been these false ministers. But there's going to be some that are really performing miracles and doing signs and wonders. And, and it's going to deceive many, even the elect, if possible. Okay? And so this, this series kind of goes against that as a warning, as a teaching. And the applicability to your life really comes at, at the last message. So this is more of a teaching type. And I don't want to drift off on tangents because this is going to be a long enough message without me taking you down a rabbit trail. So I'm going to stick to my notes as best as I can. And uh, I hope you leave blessed. Did you know that the, that the Messiah we know to be Jesus Christ filled more prophetic proclamations than any other person in the history of mankind. Did you know that? During his lifetime, Jesus fulfilled well over 250 biblical prophetic predictions. Now, it's, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to exaggerate it. I read where it's 300, and there's even more than that, but he has to fulfill those quite yet. Some of them happen when he comes back a second time. And many of those predictions were written hundreds of years before his birth. And mathematically, this is believed to be a statistical impossibility. That one person could fulfill so many prophecies in the Bible. It's said that the probability of fulfilling so many prophecies would be like building a fence around the perimeter of the state of Texas and then covering the entire state with a layer of silver dollars at a depth of two feet. And then a single silver dollar would be painted red and dropped somewhere in Texas and mixed in with the rest of them. And then your task would be to fly in a helicopter over Texas and from the helicopter find that painted coin, and you'd have to do that blindfolded. That's about how it would be. You know, in 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible tells us that um, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is really interesting because I've said this many times that when the Apostle Paul wrote this, there was, no new, there was no New Testament. What he was talking about here was the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. All Scripture. All Scripture. One of the many things the, the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament teach us is what to look for regarding who the Christ or the Messiah, Christ and Messiah, the same thing, would be, in other words, how to identify the true Christ, the true Messiah. How do we identify him? Now, in the history of Judaism and in error, more than a dozen Jewish men have thought to be the Messiah, but none of them uh, fulfill prophecy 
except one. One. And the latest who is, who is thought to be the Messiah is a guy by the name of uh, Rabbi Schneerson. And when you go to Israel, every so often, at least last time I was there, you see these signs up there about, about he's, he's going to be brought back from the dead. Signs. They're expecting him to be resurrected from the dead. <clears throat> and uh, it's not going to happen. They're, they're going to wait a long time. It's never going to happen. And in the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, we prophetically read of a coming Messiah. And in time, when God finally decided to manifest himself in the flesh through a young Jewish virgin woman to be born in Bethlehem, we began to see the new covenant fulfillment of the Messiah that would forgive sins and would then remember those sins no more a Messiah who would put his laws in our minds and write them in our hearts. Now, you know, for the next, for the next two weeks, I want to look at the uh, beginning of the biblical revelation of who the Messiah would be by looking at the Torah. What is the Torah? Now, most of you know what a Torah is. Okay, the Torah is the first five books written by Moses. And some churches do not know the, word, the Hebrew word Torah. They call it by the Greek word, the Pentateuch. With that in mind, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this time, and I thank you for these people who are truly my, my church family. Thank you. And God, I pray you help me to speak clearly so they would leave here with an understanding. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may be thinking, Frank, what's the value of these messages anyways? Well, if you have not, slide. Okay. If you have not recognized Jesus as the one and only true Messiah, my hope is that you'll understand him as the Messiah of the Scripture, and I hope you'll want to become his disciple. There might be those amongst us right now that are really not true disciples of Jesus. And if you're already a disciple, my hope is that you'll, your faith in him will become stronger and you'll want to be more um, of an obedient disciple and share the good news to other people. Now the way I understand it, there are three kinds of messianic prophecies. Uh, some are clear or obvious. Some are obscure and some are very obscure. Now, a clear or obvious messianic prophecy is a prophecy where, by influence of the Holy Spirit, the writer looked directly at the messianic age, and the readers, the readers understood the prophecy as a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It was obvious. To them, it was clear and obvious. For example, the messianic prophecy of Micah 5, verse 2. Micah 5.2 says, But you, Beth, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose reigns are from old and from ancient times. It's interesting that the Bible, it says Bethlehem Ephrathah. At that time, there were two Bethlehems. But it, the Bible is distinguishing which Bethlehem it really is. Bethlehem Ephrathah. And the leaders, 
the spiritual leaders at that time, they knew this was a messianic prophecy. It was clear for, in Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now listen. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah or the Christ was to be born. And they knew it. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. My point is simply this. It was clear and obvious to those chief priests and teachers of the law because they read the book of Micah. They knew it was a direct, obvious prophecy. To them it was not obscure one bit. They knew it. It amazes me how people can know the truth, yet be blind to the truth. Isn't that something? You could know the truth, and you become blind to the truth. And we see this all over, all over the United States. People, you know, people celebrate, we have Easter coming up. What's Easter? Okay, they understand what Easter is all about. You know, the resurrection of our Savior. Not about Easter bunnies and stuff like that, and cho good chocolates. No, they understand what it's about. They understand the truth, but they're blind to the truth. They've not acted on the truth. They're not living their life as if they know the truth. And this, is, this is, seems to be part of humanity. And that's a shame. <laughs> if that's for me, I'm busy. <clears throat> so, for the next two messages, uh, I want us to briefly look at six clear Messianic prophecies found in the Torah. And as we do this, we will see how God begins to unveil and reveal uh, who the Messiah really is. And uh, I know you probably can't see this, but let's pretend there are six, six big screens. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll out these different, I'm going to reveal these six screens to you. And they're going to unfold like, like the first screen. The first screen. And each screen gives us a clue to who the Messiah would be. A clue. So we have the first screen, and then we'll have, we'll have a second screen, and then we'll roll out a third screen, and a fourth, and then a fifth, and a sixth. And by the time we're through with the six screens, it's going to be coming quite obvious who the Messiah would be. Okay? It was a very expensive prop. <clears throat> so let's begin, let's begin looking at Genesis 3.15, which is known as the mother of Messianic prophecies. This first Messianic prophecy is announced while God is proclaiming judgment upon the serpent, who's actually Satan manifest as a serpent. 
And because he he, um, deceived Eve in the garden, there was a consequence and a prophecy. We have a tendency to look at the, the consequence, but not the prophecy. Let's look at this consequence and messianic prophecy. Genesis 3.14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly uh, shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now here we go. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, it's interesting, I read, I read other versions of this thing, and, and just to make this very clear, out of a paraphrased version, it says, from now on, you and the woman will be enemies, as well as, as will your offspring and hers. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And in the Hebrew, that's quite accurate. It's, not, it's, it's more of a killing type of a, it's not really a bruise, it's a, it's a, it becomes fatal. So the Hebrew term seed is a generic term for race. Now, in this prophecy, it's obvious that there's going to be animosity and hostility between two seeds. And these, and these seeds mean race being a race. So the prophecy speaks of two seeds or two races. And in this prophecy, we understand that there's hatred between the two. Are you with me so far? Okay. In a way, I see God declaring here, God is declaring war against the seed of the serpent. And this prophecy is a prophecy of victory because somewhere and sometime in the future, a male, a male, would be born of a woman who will arise from the descendants of Eve and that offspring will uh, produce a decisive blow to the head of Satan. And so Satan continues to attack the seed of the woman in an effort to prevent that from happening. You say, well, Frank, how do you know it's a male when it's not a female? Well, it's a male because of the, of the, the male pronoun used in describing who will crush the head of Satan. In other words, a male born of a woman who is victorious, will only receive an injury, an injury, but he will deliver a mortal blow to the skull of his enemy. In Genesis 3.15, we see two battles. (coughs) We see an ongoing battle between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And we see the final battle, (coughs) excuse me, where one is wounded and one is given a mortal blow. <clears throat> Where's the bubbler? You know, right, press a button. <laughs> the water comes up. Hey, hey, wouldn't that be cool to have a pulpit with a bubbler in it? Actually, <clears throat> actually, only Wisconsin people would know it's a bubbler. What a bub- You go to Wisconsin, they don't know what a bubbler is. A water fountain. <clears throat> So, so we know that it will be a male 
who will stain an injury, but he will eventually do away with the enemy. For our second clue to who the Messiah would be, let's look at an incident in the life of Noah. So we understand now it's a male, and there's going to be a battle. Probably two and a half to 3,000 years passed since Genesis 3.15. And because of the corrupt condition of man, God brought a worldwide flood. Oh, thank you, Judy. Is this your own private stock? Okay. Thank you. Well, everybody was drowned except Noah and his family. After the flood on dry ground, there was a time when Noah became intoxicated. And because of what Noah's sons did, there were consequences. This was a huge incident. Let's read about this. In Genesis 9, verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah. And of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, notice twice it lets us know where the father of Canaan is. It's Ham. Saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren. And Shem and Japheth <clears throat> took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward <coughs> and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall be unto his brethren. Now listen to this. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Well, first, from the verses 26 and 27, we can see that, that uh, of the three sons, Shem is, the, is really the central figure here. And the question is, who is the he? Who is he who will dwell in the tents of Shem? Well, most ancient rabbis, and even today, uh, most theologians, present-day theologians, believe he is God. God would dwell in the tents of Shem. No, and they became known as the Shemites. And then the Greeks called them the Semites. So when people are anti-Semitic, they're anti-Shemitic, and it's the Jews that became the, the Semites. Are you with me so far? That's where that comes from. Shem, all the way back. So when that word Semite, that word all the way go back to Shemite, all the way back to, the, to Noah.
So on the second, on the second clue, he, God, would dwell in the tents of the Shemites or the Semites or the Jewish people. Okay? We're getting clues. We're going to pull out the third screen. And on this screen, we see Genesis 12, verse 1 to 7. God was being specifically, when he called Abraham and Sarah, uh, a Semitic young couple, to leave their home in Ur, which is in the southern Mesopotamia, to travel over a thousand miles to an unannounced land promised to show them. God promised to show them. And with that call, God gave them promises. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord God said unto Abram, that's Abram, then God changed his name to Abraham. It always, always fascinates me where God says, don't eat ham, and then calls him Abraham. From Abram to Abraham, don't eat ham. I, I, just a play on words. Now the Lord God had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. This is amazing. Helverson. Leave, since you're retiring shortly, leave Milwaukee to a land, God says, just leave with your family. I'll show you where to go. What direction do I go? Just go. Doesn't even say travel north. Just go. Amazing. Can you imagine him trying to tell his wife this? Sarah, we're leaving. The family we're going. She says, and where are we going? I don't know, but we're going. God will show us. Okay, what direction? I don't know what direction. We're just going. I think there was a discussion. Don't you? I believe there was. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And the Lord appeared unto Abram, and said, Unto thy seed I will give this land. And there built he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. It's interesting that God made uh, those same promises to Isaac and then to Jacob. Why? Because God wanted to confirm the fact that what he had promised to Abram was to be passed down from one generation to another generation to all those of his seed. And there are eight promises God made to Abraham here. Eight promises. Number one, God will bless Abram or Abraham. Number two, from Abram, God would make a great nation. Number three, God would make Abram's name great. Number four, uh, Abram's seed or offspring would be a blessing to others. Five, God would bless those who God would bless those who blessed Abram and his seed. Number six, God would curse those who cursed Abram and his seed. Number seven, through Abram and his seed, God would be a channel of blessing to all peoples of the earth. And number eight, God would give Abram's seed 
uh, the land they entered after leaving Ur. Now this was a promise added when Abraham arrived at Sekim. So let's look at the second part of Genesis 13.3. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Let's look at this promise in reference to what Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Galatia and then in Rome. And I want you to know as we're reading this, he's talking, he's talking to primarily non-Jewish people. Okay? In Galatians 3, he says, Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then to the believers in Rome, he said this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of, of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from good works. And he said, Blessed are they who, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstance was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be their heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So we have a, Jews and Gentiles, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, they're children of Abraham. In a way, I think it's kind of erroneous that Israelites, they're just grouped together and they, they're children of Abraham. Not really. They're kind of offspring of Abraham. and They're kind of like that, but really, the faith is not there. Here's my point. Paul understood that God blessed Abraham for his faith 
while Abraham was still uncircumcised. Paul also understood that Abraham was to be a channel of blessing for both Jew and Gentile who had the faith to believe in the one true God and put their trust in Christ, God who is manifest in the flesh. Let's turn the boat just a little bit. And let's look at, at, the, at the end of an interesting clash between Jesus and the religionists at the time. In John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was, I am. Woo! When they heard that. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. When he said that, I am, they knew what that meant. He was proclaiming himself to be God. Frank, how could Abraham see the days of Jesus? How how, how could that be? Well, consider this. To see the day of Jesus is to see him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would rise from the dead to bring salvation to everyone who believed. And Abraham got his revelation of a risen Savior through what happened to him and his son Isaac when God provided the ram. And I can say that because of Hebrews 11, verse 17. Let's read this. In Hebrews eleven seventeen. now this was written to the Messianic Jews of the time. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now listen to this. Here we go. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. That's where he got his revelation. What an experience. Abraham experienced God providing a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, who was, the, who was a son of promise. Isaac was literally delivered from bondage, and bondage, tied up, and death, sure death. And in doing that, God showed Abraham that he could provide a substitute for his will to be done. So let's, let's read about this, and then I'll, I'll read an observation and clarification from a, a well-known commentary. In Genesis twenty-two thirteen, 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his, own, instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as the sand, and, and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. 
so I'm, re- so I'm, I'm looking at commentaries, because this is interesting. I'm looking at commentaries. I'm, I'm in this one particular commentary. It's, it's a short, but it's, it's pretty accurate. It's called Barnes' Commentary. And here's what he says, quote, By this event, Abraham was impressively told that a parent would not be required to offer a sacrifice for his sons for the sins of his soul, a thing which has often been done by pagans, but that God would provide a victim, and in due time an offering would be made for the world. So, we have some clues. From our first screen, we have our first clue to who the true Messiah will be, and he will be a male, born of a woman. In time, he will sustain an injury, but in time, he will crush the head of Satan. And from our second screen, we have our second clue, being that Messiah would dwell among the people of Shem, the Shemites, who became known as the Semites, or the Jewish people. He would dwell amongst them. And from our third screen, we have our third clue, and some information like the miraculous ram found in the bush to be a substitute for Isaac. God would miraculously provide one who will become a substitute, and the substitute will be able to deliver from bondage and those headed for a certain death. This clue also informs us that both Jews and Gentiles who are justified by faith become children of Abraham, and together they are blessed along with Abraham. These are clues. These are clues. And I look at these clues, and my faith is strengthened. My eyes, you know, I thank God that my eyes were open to these things. Because you can read these things, but not understand these things as true, obvious messianic prophecies. And next week we're gonna, next week we're going to look at another screen, another couple screens, and then the final screen. And these are marvelous. And when, when we pull out all the screens, you're going to say, man, I'm sure glad I'm saved. And I am positive that I am serving the true Christ. The true Christ. And nobody, I mean nobody, is going to convince me of anything else. I mean, already, already, you can, some guy says, I'm the Christ. You say, no, you're not. I don't care how many miracles you do, how many miracles you do, deceptions. I know you're not the Christ. You do not fulfill even the, the prophecies, the obvious prophecies in the Torah. Go away. Let's all stand together, please. God wants to bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace in your heart as you're discovering the Messiah in the Torah.